Welcome to the Burn Bright Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping big-hearted creative women battle burnout and live happy, healthy, vibrant lives. I'm Kelly, a fellow big-hearted creative, a licensed therapist, and a proud, quirky millennial. Welcome back, everyone. I'm excited about today's episode. Today, we're going to deep dive into allyship and what it means and what it doesn't mean. And we're going to talk to somebody named Christian List, who has basically made his whole life about this academically and studying this topic. So before we get into that, though, and have this great and fascinating conversation with Christian, let's talk about ways you can support this podcast. There's really four key ways. The first way is to share this podcast far and wide with people who you think may resonate with it. The second way is to subscribe to the podcast so you can have each episode as it drops. The third way is to like and review the podcast. Spotify has this new feature now where you can actually rate the podcast. And Apple Podcast as always. More reviews make my day. Last but not least, for the price of a couple of you can also support the podcast donation. You can see this at buymeacoffee.com/slash. Okay, let's get into today's. Let's talk about Christian List. Here's who Christian List is. He is a doctoral candidate and an anti-racism committee member within the Human and Organizational Learning Department at George Washington University. He is pursuing his degree out of the Graduate School of Education and Human Development. His dissertation research adopts a critical framework and is focused on organizational anti-racism commitment, which is truly, as we all could remember, an interesting time for us all. Through his studies, Christian has also founded out poetry. He's a former naval aviation rescue swimmer. Christian loves the water and believes the best crab cake is the one you catch and make for himself. We definitely are going to be talking about that today in the episode. And through this framework, Christian believes that no one can enact allyship just in their current sphere of influence without engaging directly with folks and questioning one's world. So with some background for Christian, I'm excited to get to this conversation. So. Here's my interview. Hi, Christian. I'm so excited to speak to you today. Thank you for being here. Well, thanks to- for having me, Kelly. Of course. I'm excited. So you are the second male guest I've had as well, male identified person on this podcast. So that's another reason why I'm also excited because I'm expanding this season, including more male voices uh, as we balance out even those podcasts primarily for women. I, I've noticed that people are responding to hearing um, from men, and particularly on this topic today, when we talk about allyship and you being a white male identified person, I really mm-hmm. wanted to talk to you and get your perspective because I think it's very unique. So to kick us off and get started, I just really want to know a little bit more about you, and I'm sure the audience does too. Who is Christian? And then how did you come on this journey of, of becoming in, invested and interested in really those kind of dy- dynamics associated with diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, accessibility, the whole list? Yeah, well, thank you. And I'm glad to be part of this con- uh, this conversation and, and contribute to this. I also want to recognize the fact that first of all there's a little bit of paradox in in me being in this podcast and we're centering a a white male's experience so i just wanted to to name that and maybe that's part of 
some of the questions we might hear about what does it take to be an ally. But a little bit about myself, I am a still a transitioning uh, veteran from uh, the U.S. Navy. I got out, uh, I was a helicopter rescue swimmer and decided to go for my master's. So I, I left the Navy and I went to George Washington um, University uh, in the organizational leadership and learning program. And that's when I would say my, my jump into DEI occurred. I have to give credit to one of my, who I would probably consider a peer now, their experience like a seemingly simple experience out in town near GW and, and their experience basically was opening eye opening for me because it was just a simple interaction where, where two people uh, met at an impasse in a crosswalk. And my peer said that they just stopped in the middle of that crosswalk and didn't want to move because they've been moving aside for people their entire life. And that really hit home for me. Not only because my first instinct well was, well, why couldn't you move aside? You know, it's it seems such like a simple interaction, but impactful for me because later, maybe a day later, I was um, going to the university via the metro. And I used to get on a stop that was pretty far out. It was, I think it was one of the last stops on the train. So I would get on and uh, I, I worked out at the gym at GW prior to going to class. And I had my gym bag and I had my backpack with my reading material. And I would read on the train prior to, to getting to class. And as I got on the train, it was empty and it kept filling up stop by stop by stop. And until I got to, to city center, I was still reading, not really noticing my surroundings. And my bag, my jet, my gym bag was sitting right next to me on the on the seat. There was, I was in a spot with you know two seats. And all of a sudden, my gym bag was pushed into me as this woman was sitting down. This black woman pushed my gym bag aside into me and sat down. And I immediately thought of... I am this person that was walking in front of my peer. And this was a woman who said, no, your bag does not take place over my ability to sit. You know, so I think about this occasion often. Every time I, I come up with a new concept of, of whiteness, of, of racism that really talks about the body and whose space belongs where I come back to my, my gym bag, being an extension of myself mm -hmm. and saying that quite possibly me saying that this space and this space around me is white. And what you need to do is actually push that gym bag into me in order for you to sit down. So I think about that all the time. So that is sort of my progression into the space and what I would probably call uh, one of those transformative uh, racialized moments in my development. It's really interesting. Thanks for sharing that. It's really an interesting story because on the surface, like you said, it doesn't seem like much, right? I'm sure every day in some people's lives, people have done that or side-eyed people who have their gym bag taking up a seat 
or, but it doesn't go any deeper than that. And then even the experience that you told me of your peer that so that they didn't want to move anymore because they, they are always moving and always kind of making space for whiteness, but that's not reciprocated. Right. And so it really is, it's a small to the outsider, right? It seems like a really small moment that probably only lasted five seconds, right? Mm -hmm. To you, it is this transformative pause and think about this being this metaphor for whiteness that like you're taking up all this space and people are just having to force themselves to fit into the space. And it's an afterthought when you take up space all the time, it lends to me thinking about like when we talk about trains and stuff, how people talk about man spreading and how, like how people just take men naturally take up space and everybody else kind of women have to, and on the other side have to like cross their legs and make themselves as small as possible. So it's a really interesting how these small moments add up one and have big impacts Mm -hmm. and that small moments are transformative. I think when we start talking about allyship, I think that's a key concept, right? That it's not the big stuff. You didn't read something or see something that was huge that made international news that moved you, but it was a small moment that resonated with you. And that I think people benefit from those small moments. And so you have this epiphany. And then what do you do as far as education? Because I know you've like chosen a path. How does this shape your educational experience? Yeah, thank you. And I use the term whiteness, and that's essentially what I study. Uh, So now I'm in the, uh, I'm in a doctorate um, program at GW. I'm a candidate now, so I'm into my dissertation phase and I am studying basically whiteness as a phenomena and I'm doing that within the context of higher education. That's amazing. It's just really amazing because people, we we think about critical race theory and all the controversy around that. And then this, this, this reaction to whiteness, people's talking about it. What is whiteness defining it? What does that mean? And and is it a real thing? Is it a social construct? All these kinds of questions have swirled around for, I think, a long, long time. But it's always interesting to me and always striking to me when white people are interested in understanding whiteness in the context of race and in the context Mm -hmm. of like social, like social interactions versus it being a defensiveness, right? A lot of times people do talk about whiteness, but it's very, when it's from white folks, typically it's a defense reaction. Like, oh, I'm a bad person because you're trying to tell me I'm a bad person because I'm white. Or I think there should be white studies in response to there being black studies, right? Like why isn't there a study mm-hmm. on whiteness? It's just a very unique decision. I, I think that a lot of people don't do, let's be clear, to study whiteness. And what is your particular interest in studying whiteness? Yeah, thank you. Um, so particularly, and we talked about the nuance, the, you know, the seemingly like the hidden aspects of whiteness, right, in the everyday. So 2020 occurred, right? Institutions of higher yeah. education all around the country committed themselves to some sort of racial solidarity or anti-racism. I'm interested specifically in whiteness within anti-racism. So the paradoxical event of whiteness embedding itself within the structures that we know that let institutions commit themselves to anti-racism. 
Okay. Now, now we got to get into it. So yes, this is super interesting. I think one 2020 has been this pivotal year for so many people. And I think there's been a lot of positive to that. I want to, before we can, you know, deconstruct some of the negative pieces of it, I want to acknowledge that there has been some positive things. People have had these moments or epiphanies or transformative moments like you're describing on smaller scales where they're realizing, okay, world is different for different people, right? I am Mm -hmm. not, particularly as a white person, if I'm a white person, I'm realizing that my experience, I don't have to worry about certain things. And yet I see that black peers or other black people just in general or people of color have to worry about their engagement with the police, particularly in 2020. And all the other things that trickle from that, because when we start talking about, you know, George Floyd, for example, which has become this this person who has been like sparked in some ways, people think a movement. I'm using quotes for that. There's so much around that. Like you talked mm-hmm. about the nature of taking up space. Critical race theory is coming out really around that time is being popularity, the 1619 project and all of this backlash mm-hmm. about what it what it means to center people of color and to center blackness in this instance. And then there are people who are having these epiphanies and these moments and are like this, particularly with George Floyd, for those, I tell people not to watch the eight minute video. I think it's traumatic for black folks. I think it's, Mm -hmm. I think honestly, it's for more white folks to see who are unaware that this is actually reality for folks, but people were seeing it. And a lot of people in corporate world in private spaces were particularly white folks were waking up and saying, Oh, this is, this is bad. Like this is not good and wanting to do something. And so we have a bunch of people rush out to want to do something. And this kind of ties into, Mm -hmm. this is my long winded way of us shifting into allyship, a conversation about allyship that all, all these folks were feeling, you know, the amount of women who were crying when they saw the video. And of course, it's a human response. It's a horrible thing to watch. The tears, the what can I do? And there was a lot of like rush to do that. And I wanted to know for your perspective, how did you interpret that moment and seeing people's reaction? And then I would really like to, after that, just have us define what allyship is and what it isn't. Because I think people then jumped up wanting to be allies, but didn't necessarily know where to begin. And so how did you experience that moment and see people around you experiencing it? Let's start with that in 2020. So how I experienced it, initially, I thought people's reaction to this was, first of all, positive overall. Now, if we're, if organizations are committing themselves to, to move the needle, that's always a good thing, right? Absolutely. It's the problem though, comes when the moving that needle requires the people who committed themselves to do more than they're willing to. So I think having a a real expectation on what is achievable slash what do we know that we can achieve is something that that people really need to to have a deep conversation about. I think most people in 2020 had a lot of people had awakenings. And so before we get deep diving into intention versus capacity, what does it mean to be an ally? Because I think a lot of people say it. I don't know if they know what it means when they say it. And do you use that word? I actually, I I think ally 
ally as a noun could be problematic. First of all, if you're seeking if you're seeking to become an ally, right? Allyship is earned. And it's very contextual. If you're trying to name yourself as an ally, I would ask yourself why. Are you are you naming yourself as an ally as say a distancing strategy from racism? Because then you could consider that to be like non-racist. You know, how I think about racism is you have you have racists who are like legit racist, like outwardly racist, right? And then you have non-racists, which are pretty much everyday people who don't necessarily understand how systemic racism is perpetuated within themselves, right? And then there's anti-racists. And I'll generalize to those three just for the for the ease of conversation. But an anti-racist who I would more classify as an ally, right, is someone who can understand and accept that racism is pretty much everywhere. It's uh, it's in all of our institutions. It's in our language. It's in our we call it the way of being within the world. And those structures we call it those structures of oppression come out most of the time unknowingly. And we have that term, right? Microaggressions. Yes. 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 And and there's uh, you know there's scholars that have named what microaggressions are. There's micro insults, micro assaults, micro invalidations. And especially now what we've seen, and it's always been there, but probably more so due to the heightened, uh, you know, events of 2020 is, is what I would call micro exploitation, right? The need to be informed by uh, marginalized groups on how to better not be racist, <laughs> you know, and anti-racism and true allyship is really the onus on the self to understand how you contribute to that. And one way that you could first not contribute to uh, exploitation is to, to really do your own research. There are so many books, there are so many articles, uh, the experience of, and I shouldn't say the experience like it's a monolith, but experience is, which is a tenet of critical race theory, right? Experiences of marginalized people, specifically to race, is has been researched and talked about for years and years. There's no reason to ask anybody about their experience like their experience speaks to everybody. Yeah, that that particularly, there's so much you said there I want to unpack, but we'll start with that right. and micro-exploitation because I love that because I tell people all the time when I work with organizations that I train and I particularly work with like their employee resource groups that will work with like whether it's Latinx or uh, their African-American your employee resource groups. And one of the things I always train and tell them is it teach them how to self-advocate and to tell people, you know, Google Scholar. 
is a beautiful yeah. thing. And if you can, mm-hmm. you know, I have wasted many a time, you may not identify with this, but I have made, wasted many a time going down a Pinterest rabbit hole, looking at the dumbest thing. Like I want to know how to make <laughs> frosting on cupcakes. And I have lost an hour of my life learning that. And many oh, yeah. people, whatever it is, or lost an hour of my life Googling a random fact I want, fact I want to know more about. If you can do that, then you can Google why I shouldn't say the N word as a white person. You can Google scholar, you know, why, what is a microaggression? You don't have to ask your black friend, your Latin friend. If there's a, you know, we've seen a spike in Asian hate asking your Asian friend. Oh, well, why don't we say Oriental? And what has happened is curiosity has turned into, like you said, exploitation, where you now are leaning on people who are marginalized to then mm-hmm. explain why. And, I, and within groups that happens, because obviously being a black woman, that doesn't mean I'm an expert on every other marginalized identity. And so it's very easy to be, to. it's a lazy way out to go and ask somebody who ask a gay friend, well, well can you tell me more about this? That's not what, that's not allyship. So that's one thing I think that's really brilliant that you brought up. The other thing is the way that you described ally and said it is as a noun can be problematic because it can be reactionary. Like, are you saying I'm an ally? People think it's a binary racist ally. And so they (laughs) hurry to say I'm an ally, right? Because they don't want to like, I'm not a racist. I'm an ally, you know, without really knowing what that means. It's just a way as a shield. I've seen it used as a shield to say, I'm not a, it's really what they're trying to say is I'm not a racist. I'm an ally. But it's like, no, no, that's you've arrived at a destination. If it's a noun, it's a thing that you are through and through. And like you said, have you done your own work? A lot of times people just say that as a response to, okay, if I'm not racist, I must then I have to be an ally uh, without understanding truly what that means. And so along those lines, I'd love to talk to you about, you know, what is the difference then between true allyship and performative allyship or people rushing to say, I'm not racist code. I'm an ally. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. Well, I think true allyship comes really, I'll, I'll put this simply and, and have this kind of be acceptable or accessible to everybody is uh, owning impact. So first and foremost, owning impact. Intent can come later. And intent should come later. And the first thing that we want to do is if we do something that is taken as racist or offensive is to say, oh, well, I didn't mean it that way. I meant it another way. You know, I meant it like this. I didn't mean to like um, offend you or hurt your feelings or, or cause trauma, right? But instead say, I recognize that this caused trauma. I apologize. What I would like to do is suspend on how that occurred and think about really like what that means to me, really dialogue with that action, right? Internally dialogue. And there's a word for this. It's called suspension, where you suspend on justifying what just occurred and really think about, you know, what were the assumptions behind that action, behind what I just said, behind the look I just gave, you know, behind the movement I just made in an enclosed space, you know, it's, it's really going internal, trying to say, Hey, I didn't mean that I'm an ally (laughs) and you should take my word for it. Right. (laughs) Is, 
that's performative allyship, right? Yeah. So what do you think? I, I, yeah, I agree. I think it, it ties into one of, you know, you, we've talked before about tools to allyship and, mm-hmm. and one of them you've said before is understanding it's the focus on the impact and letting the intent come later. And it's a human nature. We all want to make people know that we're good people. We don't intend bad things, but it doesn't in, in this type of work. And really in general, when we're offering repair or we're analyzing our actions, intent is secondary to the fact that mm-hmm. what are the impacts of my actions? And that should be like the first, it sounds like you're saying that should be one of the first questions. Someone who wants to be a true ally should be asking versus the question of I'm not a racist, which goes to intent, right? I'm not a bad person. Mm-hmm. I'm an ally. Instead, it's like, let's think about and deconstruct. And you said suspension is, is a technical term to suspend kind of all your internal stuff and, and insecurity or guilt or whatever that is, or defensiveness and think about your, your impact. What would you say? Is there any other tools you think people would help people shift from being performative to true allies? Sure. Well, on that, right. So you can, you can project possible impact on, say, if you work in an organization and you're in charge of of an initiative, you can project how this might impact people who you are not trying to directly impact, right? The the indirect impact of of these um like policies or initiatives. And just thinking of and again, just dialoguing with with whatever you're working on, how is this, how could this possibly affect somebody else? This is just systems thinking all around. And also when you do that and you practice doing that, you get to transcend certain paradigms of lived experience. You get to transcend different realities. And we've talked about this before, about kind of allyship and what it means to be and considered an, an ally as a as a white male that giving up power, right? And when you can hop to different realities, that's empowerment. That is not only empowerment for the people who are within your sphere of your sphere of influence, but empowerment for yourself. That's growth. Right. And growth is change. Yeah, I I think so. I And it's really like, you know, you can't teach empathy. People either have it or not. But I do think most people have empathy. And so really that shifting into different experiences and understanding that it's not all about you. It's not all about you being centered is growth. And, and like you said, some people might think that's on the surface, there's a lot of people who react to that and they find it disempowering. What do you mean I need to give up my power and then jump into other people's lived, like try to understand other people's lived experiences as to why I should not be at the center of the universe? What do you mean? Like that feels like giving up feels painful, right? It feels like I'm losing to give. Uh, and they don't, it's not seen as gaining, which I think is a lot of the reason why people don't go on this journey is because they feel like they have to radically change who they are at a loss, you know, like it's okay to make a change, but when you feel like I'm going to lose, people become even more protective. And so being able to shift, particularly as we, and we all need to do this to shift into other people in marginalized and racialized identities. We need to learn to 
empathize and understand and not center, suspend our guilt and and focusing Mm -hmm. on intent. And then at the same time, be willing to to shift or move. Is there anything else you want to add? I don't want to stop you. If you have anything else to add before I shift a little bit, the conversation, anything else? If I could, I I found this quote from Audre Lorde. I love to. Absolutely. We love Audre here. Go, go for it. Perfect. And this is from uh, her essay on age, race, class, and sex. And if you have the book, it's, it might be on page 123, but it says, for we have built into all of us old blueprints of expectation and response, old structures of oppression, and these must be altered at the same time as we alter the living conditions, which are a result of those structures. For the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. I'm sure that quote is very familiar. Very popular. But but also further down, she says, change means growth and growth can be painful. But we sharpen self-definition by exposing the self and work and struggle together with those whom we define as different from ourselves. In her poem, we have chosen each other and the edge of each other's battles. The war is the same. If we lose, someday women's blood will congeal upon a dead planet. If we win, there is no telling. We seek beyond history for a new and possible meeting. I love that. I love that. I don't think many people know the rest of that quote. They know the one about, you know, you cannot dismantle the master's house with the master's mm-hmm. tools, but they don't know the rest of it. Uh, of her talking about being on the edge of battles when we come together. There's some risk <laughs> there, as they're mm-hmm. saying, but they're, the rewards are beyond what we can imagine. And I think if people thought more about that, when they engaged in true allyship, we would win more than we lose because there is more out there. There is more of a risk. The risk is worth it for the growth. And just even for the fact that you know who Audre Lorde is, like you've already grown as a person. If people don't know who she is, uh, look her up. I, I love Audre Lorde. We're a fan of her on this podcast, but not everybody may know who Audre Lorde was. Uh, but her words ring true in 2022 as we're recording this. And I think that's beautiful and well said. And I think for the audience and people were we're starting to talk about like what it looks like at work and what it's not. And I don't think we need to go into a whole bunch of things. I think you've left us with two resonant things, which is that thinking of centering on impact in our actions and day-to-day work life. Like what is the Mm -hmm. impact when we talk over someone at a meeting, right? Mm -hmm. What is the Mm -hmm. impact? And then focusing on empathy and really being able to go into other people's experiences to learn about other people's experience as a catalyst to understanding why people are the way they are, why the systems are the way they are. And it gives you a jumping point to start to dismantle. You get new tools to dismantle these systems that have not been historically created for women or for any other or for other marginalized uh, groups. So well said. Uh, the last Perfect. piece I want to talk to you about is self-care. So you're getting into this work. You're a white guy. You probably don't have a ton of white guy peers. I don't know. I'm being ignorant. You might have a ton of white guy peers who are interested in this work, <laughs> but this work in general, I think anybody who does this work, it doesn't matter who you are, what identity you you have. It is tough and yes. sustaining it 
is extremely difficult, extremely, extremely difficult. So my question for you is what do you do for self-care to keep yourself in this work as this is going to be your life's work, it seems like. So what do you do to take care of yourself? You know, before I went into this doctorate program, I wouldn't call myself a poet. And I don't necessarily know if I'd call myself a poet now, but I have found sort of therapeutic environment with uh, with poetry. I think in anti-racism work, there is so much paradox and uh, within it. And that's kind of like one of the key aspects of, I think, anti-racism is understanding that the path is not linear. It's yes. It has its, its ups and downs, and but it will continue to progress. It's just a matter of understanding that there are some some ebbs and flows to it. But really, I'm so steeped in this literature that sometimes you just need to express what you're feeling without having. I guess, judgment placed upon it by other people, right? And just write without having to produce citations or, or anything. And again, I'm going to turn to Audre Lorde real quick and I'm just going to, I'm going to read Go for it. One, right? So, and this is of poetry. Of all the art forms, poetry is the most economical. It is the one which is the most secret, which requires the least physical labor, the least material, and the one which can be done between shifts in the hospital pantry on the subway and on scraps of surplus paper. And I think poetry for me has been one of those outlets where I can take a concept within the literature and I can relate it to my own experiences. And like I said, with my my experience on the subway, I've probably thought about that a thousand times over the course of my doctoral work because I can think about it in so many different ways with different concepts. So very mm. thoughtful. Uh, also, Christian had challenged me when we did self-care to drinking a pint of water uh, oh, yeah. during this interview. Uh, I did not see Christian drinking anything. I drank a lot. That's all I'm going to say. I drink a yeah. lot of water. That's part of your self-care is health and fitness. And so he's got a pint right here and he's going to chug it, I'm guessing. Do we have to chug it in the next five minutes? You can. It's up to you. I'm not going to tell you what to do, but <laughs> a, a white man who's learning. Don't tell a black <laughs> woman what to do. <laughs> I'm going to try to chug some of this. And, and while we're chugging it, I'm going to get ready to ask you the rapid fire questions. Just these are questions I ask everybody. And mm -hmm. I was going to cut it for this season, but I said, you know what? I want to know who everybody's celebrity crush is because as serious as I am, I'm also a child. And I have to get the tea on everything with everyone. And I'm, oh, it says a lot about people. So I'm going to chug some water and then we're going to rapid fire here for Christian and, and find out a little bit about what makes you tick. Oh boy. Okay. I'm bringing up my <laughs> list. I feel really, I feel really good about this list. I, I really, like I said, I go back and forth, but as much as I'm serious about the topics that we talk about, I'm also a child. So I have to ask these questions. First question, rapid fire with Christian List. What is a quote, saying, or song lyric that you live by? A quote, saying, or song lyric. I mean, being, I think, in this field, hope. I don't, I think, if I could reduce it down to a word, it would be hope. And it's a constant 
reoccurrence within this work. And I'm thinking specifically of, of Paolo Freire, that one must hope. I love that. All right. Mm-hmm. Second question here. If you could choose another career, what would it be? So you cannot go back into the Navy and you cannot get the PhD that you're getting. What would it be if you could choose another career? I think being a smoke jumper. What is that? Is that like a firefighter who jumps into the fire? Essentially, yeah. (laughs) Like with a... (laughs) Of course. I really like chainsaws. (laughs) It's not called a woodpile unless you move it three or four times. So So you like... So jumping in fires with a chainsaw. Is that what you're essentially telling us would be your other career? I'm learning so much. Sure, and that's and that's right off the cuff. Maybe it, maybe a. It's okay. Yeah, maybe a lobsterman too. (laughs) Equal. That's a little safer, a lobsterman. Uh, But smoke jumper or lobsterman. I also want to highlight that I complete the challenge and drink twenty ounces of water while you're doing that. Uh, You have to answer questions, so I, I do feel for you. It's a little harder. All right, next question: Celebrity crush. Oh, that's oh, insane. Did you be... just chug that? Wait a minute. Did you just chug that whole thing just now? It was just a half. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. <laughs> celebrity crush. Maybe not a celebrity to everybody, but Sarah Ahmed. She's a scholar. I think I know um, who Sarah Ahmed is. She's English, right? Yes. She wrote on being included. So Okay. Sarah yeah, Ahmed. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> She's gonna we may not know who that is, but we will find out. I do know who Sarah Ahmed is. And it's, if Sarah okay. Ahmed is listening to this podcast, I would love for <laughs> her to be on my dissertation committee. So okay. Yeah, Plug know. for Sarah Ahmed if you're listening. Please be on Christian's dissertation committee. We endorse it. We endorse it here. All right. An ideal way to spend a weekend. Hmm. You know, I really love hiking. Again, if there's some self-care there, that's it's really therapeutic for me. I also love crabbing. Um, I love crabs. I The process of catching crabs, you're saying, is something that you enjoy? I mean, I guess the entire process, you know, of, of getting ready, of going out. And let me just say that the way I crabbed is on a surfboard with strapping traps to the front of my board so it's not it's it's very not okay it's actually <laughs> it's like, very unique that's a different like a kind of crabbing workout because you're paddling all day yeah it, it's it's stupid if you saw my setup but i do catch crabs and they are just as tasty as the ones you could catch in a boat maybe yeah i feel like it might be tastier because you put more energy and effort into it so an ideal weekend would be you hiking around and crabbing this isn't judgment. Perfect. This is just a recap. All right. We've no, got perfect. it. All right. Perfect weekend. You're definitely from Maine. Uh, by the way, Christian's from Maine. You can tell. The <laughs> advice you wish someone gave you five years ago. Five years ago. I mean, five years ago, I was in the Navy. Five years ago, I wouldn't have imagined that I would be in a doctorate. So I guess... This, again, sounds stupid, but learning Excel. (laughs) Um, No, that is actually very good advice. 
I, w- I wish my younger self had told me it'd be a lot more than five years, but I wish my younger self had said, learn Excel, because to this day, when I'm doing things, I'm like, oh, I don't know how to make this spreadsheet work. I don't know how to do the formulas. I have a very, very, very kindergarten level understanding of Excel. And it's a very useful skill. I, I wish someone would have told me that. I know. I think I just called myself out. I don't know if I have that on my my resume that I'm ex, I'm an expert <laughs> in Excel, but I think you heard it is, first. Right? Expose: Christian is not an ex- expert at Excel. Uh, last question for you: a so- What's a song that gets you through tough times? Mm. A song. You know what? I really like. I really like Sam Smith's "Pray." All right. And if I you like listen to it, too. if you listen to it, it really just comes down to like everybody's, everybody's in this together. Everybody's living in this world and, and being in this world. And especially when it gets to the, the, like the choruses singing, you can really feel that, you know, it's a good song. I endorse it. I approve. All right, Christian, you made it through. You drank your water. Thank you, you for joining us. I drank my, I, I. Look, I nailed this. I'm very competitive. So if you tell me there's a challenge, I'm going to do it. And I drank not only one bottle of 20 ounces in under like two minutes. I also drank a solo cup. I don't know how many ounces. Oh, 18 ounces. It says at the bottom of this. I've almost finished that. So I think I've drank 16 ounces additionally during this short interview. You're on your way to a gallon. Uh, easily. I drink a ton easily. of water in a day, but I will not be defeated. There is no challenge. I will not try to win because I am nothing but petty and competitive. <laughs> it's a thing. Uh, thank you for joining us. It was really exciting to talk to you. Hopefully we'll talk to you more because I think this is a conversation that needs to continue to happen, not just once, but many times. And so I'm really thrilled that you came in today and you chatted. So I'm glad we had this conversation. Christian, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kelly. It was such a pleasure to speak with you. All right. So that's it for this week's episode of the podcast. Thank you for joining me on the Barbright Podcast. You can find me on Instagram at Barbright Podcast and at letsburbright.com for more info on self-care and mindfulness, as well as burnout prevention. You can find this podcast on a host of platforms. We're talking all the major ones, Apple and Google, as well as Spotify. Please make sure to subscribe and leave a review if you feel inclined to so you can know what each episode is. Until next week, take care of yourself. Take care of yourself.